Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Because I happen to be of a certain age and cultural background, I've always loved you too. I can't help it. But I've also always been intrigued by the band's religious and especially Christian imagery in their songs. It's a complicated topic that requires someone who is both well-versed in theology and popular music. That person is cultural theologian Greg Garrett, who in 2009 published a book on the subject, We Get to Carry Each Other, The Gospel According to You Too. Greg teaches English at Baylor University in Texas and is the author of well over 20 books on faith and culture, including two of his most recent books, 2017's Living with the Living Dead, an exploration of the theological and human insights of the zombie apocalypse, and A Long, Long Way, Hollywood's Unfinished Journey from Racism to Reconciliation, which was published in May of this year. I asked him to talk to me about U2, zombies, and how storytelling and representation can change hearts and minds. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. start with a little bit about you. So I just recently talked to Kevin Decker, who does something kind of similar to some of the things that you do, which is he he uh, uses popular culture as a way of teaching philosophy. Um, you tie a lot of popular culture into theology, uh, especially into your into Christian theology. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, why? Um, what do you love about pop culture and theology that you think it's important to kind of explore um, the way that those two things intersect? Uh, that is such a good question. I mean, it, largely it comes out of my life experience. Um, so I was raised in a conservative Christian home, and I fled that tradition as soon as I humanly could. And uh, because, you know, that was my understanding of what Christianity looked like, I, I did not come back to faith for many, many years. But in the interim, like while I was wandering in the wilderness, um, I discovered that there were novels and short stories and music by U2 and um, uh, all sorts of things, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, <clears throat> which, I, which I talk about um, seeing seven times in the theater. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you don't go to the movies seven times as a, you know, a grown man, uh, unless something really powerful and profound is happening to you. And so during the time that I was away from any kind of uh, faith tradition, there was this very real sense that I was being fed spiritually um, by literature and, and pop culture. And then when I came back to faith um, and studied theology, you know, seriously, what I understood is that there are a couple of different myth, mythic ways that we make meaning for ourselves in this life. 
And one of those ways is through what we would call secular stories. Uh, although Augustine would say that there is actually no such thing as a secular story. Um, every story that um, shapes us and moves us and uh, partakes of truth and beauty, he would say, is a story that, um, that actually points back toward God. And then in the theological work that I was doing, um, there was this very clear sense like, when we do theology, we are trying to understand who we are and where we came from and what we're supposed to be doing and what's at the heart of the universe. And so for me, it was, these are the two primary ways that we make sense of our lives. And so what I started doing a long time ago and was kind of a, an early, what would you call it, pioneer in that, was to put those things in conversation with each other. And to say, okay, here's one way we understand the world. Here's another way we understand the world. And where are the connections that um, help us to make some sense of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing? What you said about Augustine and Augustine saying that um, every story is a religious story or theology um, reminds me of something that I think, which is that every song is a love song, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that ultimately every yeah. song is about love in some way, right? So, so on that note, uh, you wrote this book about you two um, a few years ago uh, called uh, We Get to Carry Each Other. And a lot of people have talked about you two's use of Christian imagery within their songs and the way that they sort of <clears throat> manipulate it and often use it to um, tell a love song. So, for instance, um, Until the End of the World, which uses a lot of imagery yeah. of, of Christ and, and Judas, but is, you know clearly a love song or a breakup song or a heartbreak song or something like that is is what you two does uh just a way of them using the imagery that they have that they developed within this sort of um charismatic christian community that they were a part of uh to tell secular songs or in your estimation is there some underlying um spiritual insight uh, into into you two's work Oh, that is such a nice question. And it is so funny because um, I was watching um, on cable the episode of South Park where Cartman uh, starts a boy band, a, oh. a, Christ, a Christian band. Oh, that's a brilliant episode. Yeah. And, and, and it's the one where, where he's writing love songs. But, you know, instead of, uh, you know, instead of whatever, you know, the, you know, the lover would be, it's, it's Jesus. It changes and, baby to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Every, change, yeah. Changes baby to Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of the sense that you too had. But uh, you know, I've actually heard Bono talk about that, where he said, you know, if you look at our love songs, um, you can sub out, you know, whoever the lover is for God. And 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 there's a strong tradition of there, um, Cartman aside, you know, which um, when we, we think about the beloved and we think about what love actually is, um, it is this very powerful sense in which we are pushing ourselves aside in order to lean into something other than ourselves. When I, when I think about, you know, my favorite U2 songs, you can listen to and love U2 without any awareness that they're a Christian band, which is what I did during all my time in the wasteland. <laughs> so like when somebody came to me and said, you know, they're Christian, right? I'm like, no, why would they do that? <laughs> and then of course you go back and, you know, like um, I, I'm listening to Gloria off the second album and I'm like, oh, Okay, so that's that's actually liturgy. Mm. So I, I think the very powerful and profound thing that they're doing 
is you can lean into whatever kind of secular and every time I say secular tonight, I'm going to be putting air quotes around it because of <laughs> Justin. Um, but, but there's this very real sense that you can love you two without any awareness of who they are, or where they came from. And, you know, I, I interviewed them early on in their career and uh, talked with a lot of people who knew them, including their chaplain. And um, so, you know, like Christian faith is essential to who they are. And even Adam Clayton, who for many years was like, you know, the non-Christian member of U2, they now say, you know, he is he is a person who has a whole lot of faith identification and and, and understanding of himself in terms of um, the 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 belief and practice that he and the band have lived out together. So, I mean, I, I wrote a whole book about it because I wanted to understand it. And that's why I write books so that I can, <laughs> can learn something. It's entirely selfish. And, that's why you know, I do this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people, people pay me to figure some things out for myself and it's, it's actually a really good life. Um, but the, the understanding that I came is that like when I interviewed you two in a 300 seat club in Oklahoma City while they were promoting that second album, they were wrestling with this whole question of what it means to be a person of faith and to want to make rock music. Hmm. And uh, I mean, you you probably know the story, but like the the band almost broke up uh, over the fact that their evangelical community in Dublin said you can't do those two things together. You know, it's the devil's music. God does not like rock and roll. And if I had been a better journalist or honestly just a more, you know, in, in touch person, I would have asked them questions about that that night. But it was only later that I understood, wow, this is this is the real tension that they were facing. Mm-hmm. And then they just said, you know, screw it. We're going to lean into this. And I don't care what people say. It is entirely possible, you know, to love Jesus and to love Bo Diddley. And um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, thank God that they did that uh, because, you know, they, they have shaped the world. They have provided so much comfort. Um, I've been thinking a lot about them lately because, you know, they were our soundtrack after 9-11. Right. Um, when, when the world kind of fell apart. And it just it just feels like this incredible gift they gave to us to say, no, I'm going to step away from this reductive idea that you have to be a certain kind of musician if you love God. And um, so, you know, they have leaned into it in a really powerful way, and, and they continue to speak to me. You mentioned the moment that they had this tension and almost broke up and as i understand it um that is what the song one is about and one Mm -hmm. is almost i mean it's most people would say it's one of their greatest songs some people would say it is their greatest song um it is again can be read almost exclusively as a love song but it actually is about the tension within the band but it's also their most nakedly religious song um i think i like in terms of the imagery it doesn't get any sort of starker um you know than saying playing jesus to the lepers in your head right is that deliberate like in other words is is the reason why that song is so good is because not just the music's good and the, the lyrics are great and the delivery is great but because you know, it, it is the whole struggle all sort of wrapped into one moment. Well, what I understand about you two is, you know, they were raised Protestant and Catholic in Ireland. 
mm-hmm. uh, during the Troubles. And so they they left organized religion for, I don't know, unorganized religion, disorganized religion. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, that evangelical group, you know, that was ministering on the streets. And, and then they they were rejected by that as well. So basically what they said to themselves is like, I believe this God Jesus stuff is actual, but like every one of the ways that we've tried to approach this, you know, with other people has not worked. And what I wrote about in the book, and this was profoundly important for me because I'm a capital I introvert. And one of my (laughs) spiritual understandings over the last 10, 15 years is just how much I need people, even though, you know, don't put me in a crowded room with people. Um, and just like as a sidebar, I will say this, there's a there's a legend in my family uh, where I called home from the bathroom of a party at Baylor University where I teach. And I said, I can't go back out there, but I have to go back out there. And and my wife and my daughters were like, why do you have to go back out there? And I said, because the party is for me. <laughs> so like what what one does and, and what happens when you look at, at U2's history is that they became their own congregation. Um, you know, they loved each other and lifted each other up and challenged each other. Um, there is a story about Adam, Adam Clayton that I tell over and over and over again, um, because it is one of the most profound understandings that I have about um, what, what faithful community looks like. And, uh, you know, Adam was the person who, like most ardently, lived into, leaned into the rock star lifestyle, you know, the drinking and the drugs and the supermodels. And um, toward the end of one of the sh- of the, the concert tours, they were shooting um, um, film in Australia. And it was like one of the last nights of the tour. And Adam didn't make it to the show. So the other three came to him and, and they came to him in love, but they also came to him with this very real, like, because I've been in rock bands, I know that there are like minimum expectations, one of which is that you show up for the gig. <laughs> yeah. And, and they said to, to him, we love you and this cannot continue. And, and what happened? I mean, if you talk to anybody else in the band, they will tell you that like after that, Adam changed. You know, the, the community that he was a part of pushed him and encouraged him and loved him. And it was tough love because it was like, you can't do this again. Um, but everything after that, like um, I've seen over and over again where people from the band have said, you know, people say that Adam is not the religious one. He's not the spiritual one, but Adam is the person that every one of us have gone to in crisis hmm. because he turned his life around. And there's a, there's a, a New Testament Greek word, metanoia, that appears over and over again in the new Testament. And in the tradition that I'm, you know, I'm a part of it, it's usually translated as repentance. So it's like, you know, stop doing the bad stuff you're doing. But what the Greek actually means is it's about a 180 degree turn away from the things you shouldn't be doing and toward the things you should be doing. If I took nothing away from you too, just that story of, of Adam um, would have changed my life. There's something I've noticed in my, I mean, I, I've loved you two my whole life and I'm of the generation that, um, that's, that's just been true for. So, you know, Octoon Baby came out when I was a teenager. Um, and, and when I was very young and just started to like open up to, to popular music was when Joshua Tree came out. And, um, so, so it's like, 
they've had a certain place in the world for me. Um, but one mm. thing I've, I've kind of noticed, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about this, which is that people, friends of mine who are a few years older than I am, um, say five or six years older than I am, tend to either dismiss or just hate you too. <laughs> but within, within a couple of years of me, like my, my, my wife and some of my friends who were born maybe one or two years after me, within that window, it doesn't matter like what your default genre is. Like I have friends who are like punk rockers, right? And they love you too. Right. And there seems to be like within, and I'm not going to give away how old you are, um, but <laughs> that people a few years older than you also have no time for, for you too. There's this very, like very specific window of let's say 15, 20 years. What is it about that? Do you think there's something about that time period? Um, Something that was going on either, um, it could be the end of the Cold War. I I don't really know exactly what it is, but there seems to be something that was happening in the air that made you two really resonate within a certain, you know, couple decades of of people. Yeah. I I think that what they offered was in a, a challenging time and a time of a lot of cynicism. I mean, the early albums, I mean, certainly before Octoon Baby, yeah. where they, they kind of said, okay, we've gone as far as we can go with sincerity. And let's, <laughs> you know, let's um, kind of draw some contrast with that and, and see what satire and, and um, that, you know, that feel might look like. Um, but I think for a whole lot of people, it, it's, for me, it's the same kind of effect that Springsteen has on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. Can you believe that, you know, all the redemption I can offer is underneath this dirty hood. Um, <laughs> I mean, can you believe that, you know, I believe in the love that you gave me. I believe in the faith that could save me um, because we are suspicious of people who, who tell the truth and who, who lean hard into sincerity because much of our culture, political, popular, I mean, however you want to think about it, you know, recognizes that we are not always our best selves. But I think what you 2 was calling us to do, I mean, all of those powerful songs, there's this very real sense that they're saying we can do better, we can be better. And I mean, it is so funny. When I uh, when this book came out, the U2 book, I did an interview on Dublin Talk Radio, and um, I got in a cab to go to the radio station and, you know, because he was Irish, he was like, I am going to talk to you the entire way. <laughs> and so he was yeah. like, you know, what are you doing here? Because clearly you're not one of us. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to Dublin Talk Radio. I'm going to talk about my book about you, too. And he's like, you, too. And uh, so he went on and like went on a long uh, rant about Bono. Um, and he knew Bono growing up in um, in Dublin. And he talked about how he used to like slip Bono um, money to get on the uh, like the public transportation. And he kept calling him St. Bono. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, people who dismiss Bono, um, I think largely it's in the same way that people might dismiss Bruce. Yeah. yeah. Um, because if, if you push too hard toward authenticity and, and truth and sincerity, I mean, that, it is easy for people to think, wow, that's, that is absolutely too much. Can you be for real? And, and you know, Bono's life as a public figure, the, the charity work that he's done, um, the lobbying, I mean, 
you know, standing in George W. Bush's office pushing for aid to Africa. I mean, like, clearly all of those things are real. Um, like, he's he's not a fake. But most of the time in our life and in our culture, when people push so hard for us to do better and be better, we're like, can you possibly be for real? And, and, and so I think that that may be what's at work there. Uh, good answer. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about some of your more recent work. And I, I, you must right now. I mean, obviously the the chaos and strange times that we live in are are just very difficult to deal with. But uh, some part of you right now must feel like, man, how did I tap into the zeitgeist <laughs> quite this way? Um, you know, two of your most recent books. I think actually your two most recent books. Uh, one is about race in Hollywood. The other is about the zombie apocalypse. Um, and and that you know. the, if those two things aren't aren't just mind blowingly relevant um, right now, you, you must have some sort of uh, palantir that you can. Uh, you know, oh, I see wish. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I would probably end up like prostrate. You know, like a like a hobbit. You know, completely right. like overcome. <laughs> By the power. Um, <laughs> oh, here is my thing. As a cultural theologian, I am really drawn to try and understand the stories that are kind of circulating in a moment to help us figure things out. Yeah. And so, like, uh, that's what was happening with you too. That was what was happening with the Harry Potter book that I wrote. Um, and, and that was what was happening with the zombie book. Right. Because um, I will tell you, frankly, I mean, like I am, you didn't want to do this. I will do it. I am 58 years old. <laughs> I am not a huge fan of horror films or television. Yeah. Um, I have had enough horror in my actual life. You know, I, I don't need to jump on a roller coaster or watch a zombie movie to, you know, get you know, like the adrenaline rush. You know, every day is an adrenaline rush. But I had this really powerful sense while I was working on that book. And, and um, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead were the most popular TV shows in the world. Right. And, and for me, the big question always is, you know, with Harry Potter, with you two, with these zombie apocalypse stories, why is it that so many people are drawn to them? And uh, so there was this very powerful, like, drive to understand that. And of course, I mean, as we think about our current pandemic, um, I tried to contextualize it in terms of post 9-11 because more than half of the zombie stories, movies, et cetera, have been told after 9-11, even though we go back 50 years. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And the reason, I mean, like, if we, if we want to just break it out, we live in a 24-7 news world where bad news comes at us like a horde of zombies. And... Um, there is this this sense that we can be overwhelmed by that. But there's also this very powerful sense of how do we be faithful to our call to be human in, in the face of all this bad news and all this tragedy and all this fear? And I remember um, I, I mentioned this in the book, but I had a conversation with Angela Kang, who is now the uh, showrunner of The Walking Dead TV show. And one of the things that helped me put all this in perspective was she said, you know, The Walking Dead is not about zombies. It's about what human beings do in response to this crisis. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that was like, you know, poo, mind blown. Okay. <laughs> I get it. This is how do we be true to ourselves and be the best humans that we can be 
in a world that is just coming at us relentlessly. And I actually wrote some stuff about this earlier this year, uh, even before the uh, the race and film book came out, because people were asking me to reflect on, you know, what is it like? What are the lessons of the zombie apocalypse for our current current moment? And I mean, it's still the same stuff. Um, the The stories of the zombie apocalypse help to kind of orient us in a world where threat keeps coming at us over and over and over. And in all of these stories, you know, whether it's Shaun of the Dead or The Walking Dead or, um, you know, the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones, uh, 28 days later, you put some zombies down and tomorrow you're going to have to wake up and do all of this over again. And so there, there's like it's, it's a great spiritual, emotional lesson that we, we live in a world now where we cannot just you know, say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to solve this and it is solved forever. You know, because tomorrow morning, well, actually at this moment while we're talking, my president is saying things that are going to set me off. Yeah. And sometime <laughs> in the middle of the night, he's going to start tweeting um, uh, about the chaos that's going to come into the suburbs. And I've had to deal with this for the last four years. You've had to deal with it. We've all had to deal with it. Yeah, And then you just pile on these other things. And that is kind of the world we live in. All of these like multivalent, multi-level threats that keep coming at us and do not stop and, and engage our adrenaline fight or flight responses. But what I love about these zombie stories is they also offer us some really powerful opportunities to think about what it means to be human. And in the book, I say, you know, one of the most important things is that thing we were talking about earlier, about how when we are living up to the very best of ourselves, we recognize that our individual problems don't matter as much as larger things that we contribute to, um, that the community is a really powerful and, and um you know, compelling way that we define ourselves and that we can um, become those people that we're called to be. And then in the last chapter, which is my favorite chapter of um, living with the living dead, I talk a lot about hope and living with hope. And part of that is, you know, my, my understanding of my Christian faith, but part of it is also narrative. It is really hard to live in a story where you don't think that maybe somehow someday things can get better. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it really, when I read that bit um, of your book about when, when one of the showrunners of the walking dead was talking about how, you know, the zombies aren't the bad guys. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it, so, so, you know, it, it struck me because there's so much zombie lore that mm-hmm. has, um, reflects culture but in a way that like it n- never quite the same way twice so like romero right, obviously right. was 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 commentarying on uh capitalism and consumerism and um yeah and racism and sure yeah and and you look at you know mary shelley like frankenstein is a, is a zombie story right and and, yeah. and that has its own um its own its own lesson as well and 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 zombies have a religious element to them anyway they go they go back to you know the, the voodoo tradition of 80 um yeah. and and jesus yes and jesus right and 
you know, the Gospel of Matthew, when a bunch of people just start walking around the city, walking right? around um, out of their grave. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so certainly, you know, the, it's not a stretch to to draw this connection between between zombies and and religion. But one of the things that um, I found useful because uh, I teach teenagers, and a lot of them watch The Walking Dead, and it's 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 a good it's a good touchstone um, to to teach from. Yeah. One of the things that I point out about that show which i have to admit i haven't watched in a few years i used to watch it pretty religiously and it's been a few years but I, you know i i watch the good seasons and and uh i i get i get the gist of it what i find useful about it um is is when we're dealing with these existential crises um things like so i i talk to them you know for instance about about the climate crisis and i say look you, you should not think of this as one day you're going to wake up and everybody's gone and the world is over because that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is going to look a lot more like the walking dead without the zombies, which is that everything that you've come to rely on about civilization breaks down and you have to figure out a way to live with other people and also, and also trust other people and also avoid fascism. Um, And those are going to be very, very difficult struggles. That's what the stakes are. Right. And and what I what I find so compelling about Walking Dead especially is that it it paints that picture so well. Um and, and shows us that, you know, maybe we should start now. We've seen mm-hmm. we've seen what can happen. Maybe we should start um building a, a, a human community, um, you know, a, a beloved community now. Yeah. You know, when Rick starts out on the show, he's a person of such incredible humanity. Right. And, and then there are a couple of years during the show when, you know, people um, referred to him as the rictator. <laughs> and, you know, so, I mean, if we think of those kind of, um, I don't know, shifts, how can you survive in a world and keep your full humanity? How can you survive in a world without giving yourself up to that whole idea of fascism? Um, and in and, and the sense that you're going to have to destroy your enemies before they destroy you. And, um, what I've what I've loved about the show, and again, like you, I have not been watching it lately because, like my my book is out, and this is the <laughs> first time I've talked about it in like a year. Yeah. Um. But actually, Angela Kang is going to uh, be in my screenwriting class this semester. Um. So she's going to zoom in, and uh, we're going to talk about one of the episodes that she wrote, and uh, she's going to kind of visit with my students about like the ongoing progress of the show. Um, so I guess I should probably watch some recent. <laughs> At least watch that episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think there are these really powerful ethical questions that are explored in this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, even the simple question of is it okay to kill zombies or not um, is something that's explored in a lot of these stories. And, you know, because there is this very close resemblance to human beings, And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, sadly, there is not always an incredible difference between zombies and us. You know, um, we are these like rapacious consumers um, living largely for ourselves. But I I think about one of the early episodes of The Walking Dead where uh, Rick walks into a church and there's a, you know, Jesus on the cross you know, sort of hanging over uh, the the back of the church. And he was like, did you ever have to figure these things out? You know, did you, did you ever have to make these hard decisions? Um, and he says, yeah, I'll bet you yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, and so there's um, there's this this incredible experience that you know, you know these stories help us figure out things about our real life. And that was the reason I wanted to write this book, not because, like I said, I, I really love zombie movies. And, and there were people in my life who said, this is stupid. This is career suicide for you. <laughs> uh, Rowan Williams, the past Archbishop of Canterbury, who is one of my dearest friends, said to me, you could give your life to something so much better than this. <laughs> and... I just had to like bring him back down to earth. And I said, do you remember all the conversations we have had about Dr. Who? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. I know. And he was like, <laughs> oh, right. I also, I, I was thinking about how um, there's a couple of these storylines in The Walking Dead. There's a few times where I've been like, oh, this reminds me of a religious debate in a, in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and two of them are, actually it sort of happens twice. So, so one of them is, uh, when they first arrive at Herschel's farm and he's been keeping all of these zombified people right in the barn. Oh, and he's yeah. like, no, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to bring them back. And then, and then there's also, I think even more kind of poignantly is the, is the governor um, when he is keeping his, his daughter on a leash. I know. Um, yeah. Right. For the same reason. And it, it really reminded me of the Terry Schiavo case yeah. where we had as a culture, this moment where we really did have to debate what it is to be alive, um, yeah. which I think ultimately was 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 productive uh, in in some way. It's unfortunate we have to kind of, you know, live it out through someone's real story. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think that's one of the essential religious questions: is like, what is being alive? Yeah, and, and you know, the way I approached it in the book is I talked about an experience that I had during my hospital chaplaincy during seminary. And um, I was in this room, you know, uh, doing the prayers for the dead. And during the time that I was doing the prayers out of the uh, Episcopal prayer book, the, you know, the patient died. Hmm. And and so at some moment, he went from being this thing to this thing. And, And what exactly does that mean? And in the book, I talked a lot about the kind of iconic moment in a lot of zombie films and in TV shows where a person transforms into a zombie. So like there's like this really lovely, funny, horrifying scene in Shaun of the Dead where his stepdad dies and comes back. And then later when his mom dies and comes back and what happens in that interim? I mean, and it's a huge sort of existential theological question. Um, But it's also like, what is the difference? Because like, you know, uh, Sean's stepdad was like a really sort of disagreeable guy in life, and he's just a little bit more disagreeable in death. And he turns off the heavy metal music in the car as a zombie because he doesn't want to listen to it anymore. <laughs> so, okay, let's 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 move on to your most recent work, um, which again. I, like as we're talking right now, right, another one of these crises is unfolding. Um, yeah, at on, this in, very moment. At this very moment. Um, so your most recent book is about the relationship between Hollywood and race, and um, you know, it's it's such an interesting topic because Hollywood is such a very strange and very kind of specific and and. Um, varied history uh obviously it's you know it, it, the whole franchise kind of began as 
a bunch of people escaping Thomas Edison. Um, yeah, right. like it was it was purely like a uh, you know a, a business controversy. Um, so instead of Hollywood being in New Jersey, it ended up being in <laughs> California. Right. And, you know, it did, It kind of began as, as kind of these social misfits and outcasts and, and artists. And uh, there's the, um, the the Red Scare and McCarthyism and all of that sort of stuff. And that's all just part of the Hollywood story. And then we also have mm-hmm. this kind of outsized stereotype of Hollywood being all just a bunch of liberal progressives and everything else. Yeah. Um, and that it's the vanguard of liberalism, and it's the it's the easiest way the conservatives just kind of put down anything liberal is by saying it's just Hollywood elite values, whatever. But right within all of that is racism, right? And within all oh, of that yeah. is is this is this uh, very much kind of I, I think for a long time um, unexplored racism, and I think one of the turning points for this was. Um, a few years ago when there were like a lot of really good black movies by black artists and mm-hmm. none of them got nominated for an Oscar and the hashtag Oscar so white um, I think yeah. really did sort of reset the conversation a little bit and and you know hashtags I think have, have proven to be far more uh, impactful than we give them credit for like me too started as a hashtag black lives matter started as a hashtag yeah. Um, yeah. and this kind of reckoning with Hollywood I I would I would sort of if I'm if I'm being a sort of um, micro historian, I would say that it dates to that, right? That moment where people were like, what the hell? Like, why is, why is, why are all these movies so damn white when there's been yeah. such great black cinema? And I mm-hmm. also think in the last several years, um, which is something that it seems to be one of the sort of pervading themes of your book is that the last few years have seen, I think some of the best and most high profile uh Black cinema and and work by by black filmmakers um, coming to the surface. Uh, movies, I mean, as varied as Get Out and Black Panther and Moonlight and you know Twelve Years a Slave yeah. and and so you know I, I I assume that something within what I just said was one of the things that compelled you to um, to to write this out and and explore this history. Um, but what specifically pushed you into this? Um, this corner. It, it is actually really interesting. Um, I've been teaching about race and literature and culture for many, many years. So like I've been teaching uh, do the right thing for 30 years. It's 31 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have always known that great stories are our way into deep conversations. Um, that's, that is at kind of the heart of my teaching method when I teach literature and film. Um, but the really interesting piece about this is that this book grew out of somebody else's idea. An Episcopal priest named David Anderson, uh, who serves uh, in an inner city church in Delaware, uh, invited me to come and do a retreat uh, during Lent four years ago. And he said, you know, my congregation was formed when a failing white congregation and a, a black congregation were, were put together uh, because kind of of their geographic proximity. And he said, you know, we've worshiped together for 10 years and we've worked together for peace and justice, but we have never successfully had deep conversations about identity and race and who we are. And so he said, I have this idea that if you come and show us some films and lead us into those conversations through those films, that we might get to some really powerful place that I have not been able to take us on our own. 
And, um, you know, so it, it ties back into my whole idea about literature, culture, story, uh, being, being the way that we have hard conversations that, that bypass our entrenched positions. So I, I went that weekend uh, to Delaware and I showed them uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Crash uh, mm-hmm. and Do the Right Thing. I think those were our three movies that weekend. And uh, so on the Friday night, I showed Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and I led them in conversation and it dived deep and it was profound. And um, I got home that night and I emailed my editor at Oxford and I said, I know what the next book is. (laughs) I I don't know exactly how this is going to work, but it is something about how film as like America's most, you know, powerful form of cultural myth-making can help us get into this deep conversation about race, racism, representation. So what grew out of this, obviously, was that I wanted to kind of dive deep into the ways that Hollywood has done well and done ill. The way I talk about it is, again, mythology. What are the harmful mythologies, the the soul-killing mythologies, and, and what are the life-giving mythologies? What are the, the ways that these films might help us to understand a, a new way of relating to each other and a new way of being America? It was a four-year journey, and I did not expect it to be four years. I, I like According to my contract, I was supposed to have written it in two years. And uh, four years is one of the longest of my 20-some-whatever books. Yeah. But, but the big thing that I discovered that... I was in. Uh, I was doing a lot of these public programs. Uh, so we we started a film series at Washington National Cathedral in D.C. Um, I uh, helped people kind of put these things together around the country. Uh, we did a big uh, film series at Trinity Church Wall Street, which is the wealthiest church in America. Uh, yes, where I know it. <laughs> where I, I got to sit on stage next to David Diggs of Hamilton. Oh. Um, because so they were jealous like, of your life. <laughs> I know. Well, and it's, it is all about Trinity because, um, you know, our, our partners, um, Kelly Brown Douglas, the great African-American theologian, and I have done a lot of this work together. And the people at Trinity said, um, we, we were showing um, a film that David Diggs co-wrote and, and stars in, Blindspotting, which mm. is an, an absolutely fabulous film. And um, they said, would, would you like for us to... Uh, you know, make an offer to David Diggs's people. And, you know, most of my work on these programs is like, I'm working with nonprofits on a tiny budget. And I was like, yes, you should absolutely make an offer to David Diggs and his people. And um, so they were like, okay, he says he'll come for X amount of money. And we have X amount of money. And I'm like, oh, God bless Trinity Wall Street. So, um, I was a part of all of these conversations, and Kelly was essential to it, as you know from reading the book. There were so many things that even as a, I think of myself as a racially progressive liberal uh, who grew up in the South and, and sees the injustice of our system, but my experience was just so limited. And so like, just for example, just the, the conversation that I had with Kelly about her seeing guess who's coming to dinner for the first time and her helping me to understand, um, you know, I had seen myself represented on TV and on movie screens since my birth. And she said that, that movie where I saw Sidney Poitier, that 
beautiful, dignified, smart, black man. Yeah. Was the first time I ever saw myself in the black man I knew represented on screen. And I was just like, oh, God, that's that's heartbreaking. Um, and because, you know, I, I quoted Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk in the book. And he says this, and, and I reinforce this in a lot of ways because it's absolutely true. What Barry Jenkins says is if you don't see yourself represented, it's as if you don't exist. Yeah. And, and lots of other folks that I worked with and talked with and was part of conversations with, many of which appear in the book, um, helped me to, I mean, like I had so many light bulb over the head moments, even though I thought that I was relatively awakened for a white middle class guy. Um, I, I tell the story in the book about how after we showed um, Do the Right Thing in Washington National Cathedral, um, Corva Coleman from NPR turned to me as the only white face on the stage. And she said, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with law enforcement? <laughs> and, and sadly, um, because I grew up in a small town and I, I had a kind of... Uh, <laughs> checkered uh childhood i i actually have some experiences with law enforcement right yeah me too yeah yeah but but you know what i said is you know there was never a moment in my life when i feared for my life <laughs> right like I, right I, I i feared for the beer in my trunk right <laughs> yeah and so yeah. like you know i told my story and like I, the light bulb is coming on over my head yeah and then right. then then corva turns to van newkirk from the atlantic um my friend who I think is maybe one of the greatest of our contemporary writers on race and politics. Mm -hmm. And she asked him about his experience and he puts his hands out in front of him. And, you know, we are sitting in this, you know, like this packed nave of the Washington national cathedral, um, racially diverse, a lot of white people. And Corvus says, Van, could you explain to our audience what you're doing? And just matter-of-factly, which was the part that broke my heart, he says, I am putting my hands at 10 and 2 in plain view on the steering wheel so that I don't get shot. You know, one of the things that I thought of when I was um, going through your book is, is, again, this is something that I've talked to my students about quite a bit, which is the idea of the importance of representation. And it's not just, yeah. it's not just a matter of... Um, accurately showing the diversity and the humanity and, and, and avoiding tokenism and the magical Negro and, you know, like all yeah, the sort of yeah. things that Hollywood has, has used over the years. But one of the, th one of the things, I, one of the things I point to is, is why it's so important is, is and one of the things that sort of really as a, of, of a certain generation um, uh, profoundly impacted me, actually two things. One is Bill Cosby and the other is Michael Jackson. So oh, when, I was yeah. when, I, when I was growing up in the 80s, those are the two most famous people on earth, right? Maybe right. Michael J. Fox as well, but those, those, <laughs> those three people, right? Yeah. Um, recent revelations about Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby are deeply problematic and what, <laughs> obviously, and have, and have ripped away this these two people who broke through cross and you know not 
it wasn't Bill Cosby writing about, uh, you know, being white. It, like Bill Cosby, you know, showed this authentically black family who were mm-hmm. um, doctors and living in the, you know, the posh part of Brooklyn and that sort of thing. Right. And the problem is that when you put all of your eggs into one basket and those eggs all break, right? It, it's that's that's why representation is so important. Um, yeah. Because you need more than one Bill Cosby. You need more than one Michael Jackson. Um, right. and, and that's why it matters so much because all of the progress, and I think that, you know, the, the Cosby show made a ton of progress in the um, the conversation and, and, and breaking through these racial barriers. And it's just all gone now. And it, 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 like it, you can't get it back, right? And like because it was all just this one thing, um, and I, that's yeah. that's something like I thought about a lot reading your book, and I've thought about a lot in in the last several years as all of these incredibly diverse and incredibly rich black stories um, have have finally kind of made it to uh, to the forefront of of popular entertainment. Yeah, I, I talk in the book about you know kind of a phase which I think has happened in the last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years um, that I call casual multiculturalism. Yeah. And, you know, Oscars, Oscar so white aside, there, there is this idea that it's not a crazy thing that you turn on a, this is us or watch a movie crash. And there are a bunch of people of color in it. Right. Yeah. You know, and it, it's not a token Negro, you know, a, a magical Negro. It's not um, it, it's not somebody who has to carry the weight of the world. Like, you know, you were talking about Cosby and, and Michael Jackson doing. But like you look at some of the Marvel films and some of the Star Wars franchise. Um, and, and there is this very powerful sense that we are finally getting to the place where our culture and our entertainment look a little bit more like all of us. And, you know, part of this is demographic. You know, there is this, you know, this sense that we are moving toward a majority minority United States. But there are also all of these great people of color who are telling stories, uh, who are writing and directing and acting. And, And I think this became clear to me the second or third time that I watched Moonlight, uh, Barry Jenkins, great film. Yeah. There is not a major character in that film that is white. And it was probably the third time that I watched that film. And I'm looking at a, like a white extra in the diner toward the end of the film. And I'm like, Oh, look. And the important thing about that was that it did not matter. Like I was so connected to those characters and loved them and wanted to see them thrive. And that I think is what our future looks like. You know, we're going to have stories from all sorts of different perspectives that are going to connect us to the universal human part of who we are. And and they're going to be true and beautiful in the way that Augustine talked about. And and maybe I don't actually see myself represented on that stage. And yet, I know what human brokenness looks like, and I know what human yearning looks like. And I know what it means to want to be loved and accepted. I mean, all of those things um, are at the heart of every important human story that we tell. And, and the really kind of fun thing for me the last few years, um, you, you notice that James Baldwin shows up over and over again in my book. Uh-huh. And James Baldwin is like in my backpack. He is accompanying me <laughs> wherever I go. And, and last summer, in fact, I went to the village in Switzerland 
where he went on several occasions to write with his lover. Um, not because I thought I was going to find a trace of James Baldwin, but just because I wanted to see what he saw. And to, to have some sense of how that would help connect us. And it was really powerful and profound, although it was also terrifying because I was like riding a bus up these hairpin curves up into the Alps and looking out my window and like looking down, you know, thousands of feet outside the window. But that has been one of the biggest things that has driven um, my work in recent years is just this sense that whatever differences we may have in terms of what we look like or how we worship or how we vote or who we love, you know, at the end of the day, if we can just get back to this, we are so much more alike than we are different. I, I also don't want to overlook the fact though, that like, you know, I'm white and you're white. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, and, and with that, like there, there, there comes a certain, um, you know, awkwardness about about sort of having this conversation. Um, I also think that, and I, and you know, again, this is something you you um, address, which is that racism is a white people problem. It really is. It's you know, it's it we we created it, and it's for us to solve and and yeah. uh, and deal with. But at the same time, like admitting that that's true, but not leaving black people out of the conversation. It's a very kind of difficult line to. <sighs> to walk right and so you know obviously i know you are opening yourself up to that fact and to um that that conversation and writing a book about race in hollywood um as a white guy right sort of opens you yeah. up to that what is what is your um sense of the responsibility of white people how we can how we can navigate that that's very strange gray area um and 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 how what what, what do we have to do in terms of the entertainment industry, um, what, what, what work is there still like left to do, um, in that, in that project? Yeah. Well, let me start with the first part of that, qu that question. Cause it's multi-part and you may have to remind me of the, yeah, the entertainment Hollywood part. Um, but, but here is the first thing. I think it is essential that we hear from the voices of people of color who have been marginalized. And I would never want to step in and impose my voice over them. And like, you know, we've talked about all these sort of public programs that I've partnered with people of color to do. I am almost always the only white person on the stage. And that is exactly how it should be, mm -hmm. um, because I've got a certain set of perspectives and understandings that can be useful. But, you know, I want to hear from Van Newkirk and I want to hear from Corva Coleman and I want to hear from Kelly Brown Douglas. And, and, and that's an essential part uh, for many of our white brothers and sisters now who, you know, post George Floyd are realizing, wow, this actually is the world we live in. So um, I think first, it is essential to make sure that the voices like black lives are recorded and understood and, and, and prioritized. But as somebody who grew up in the American South, as somebody who's, uh, who grew up in a white, you know, Southern Christian environment, I can tell you, that I am able to initiate conversations that some people of color would never be able to successfully navigate. Um, and, and it's not because they're not smart and it's not because they don't have compelling stories, uh, but it's because of the whole white fragility thing, you know, that is, you know, kind of front and center in our culture right now. When white people are confronted with the reality of what we have done in our history and with the many myriad ways that we continue to be complicit 
in setting hierarchies in our culture. Um, it is super hard for people to hear that from people that don't look like them because they feel confronted and judged. Um, so like when I taught um, a class on film, race, and theology at Baylor, a, a graduate seminar this spring, I had smart and really genuinely good human beings in that class. But when we read Black Liberation theolo Theologians, they kept saying to me, they are really angry. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel bad about myself. And, you know, so my response was first, you understand why they are really angry, right? And they're like, yeah. So like they could make the intellectual connection. But here's the really, it's not funny, not like funny haha, but just, you know, funny in a sense. Since my book on race and film came out, I have been invited to speak to a bunch of white, like, largely white church congregations and organizations about how they might live into the reality of our living in a racist society. And the reason they asked me to come is because I look like them and I can help them process in a slightly less threatening way. And again, I'm going to talk about my friendship with Kelly and my friendship with Van and my friendship with Corva and what I have learned from them. And I have seen people weep when I tell Van's story. Um, but there is something about looking at someone who looks like you, the representation thing we were talking about. And my saying, I have processed this some on my own. I want to help you process it. So that's the very strange position in which I find myself. I did not expect to be a white person talking about race to the extent that I am. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that what I can do is I can do that in a way that honors the stories that I've been party to and directs people back to black lives that matter. And also says to them, this is, like you were saying, our problem. We created this. We have to fix it. And I had an email from Kelly um, a couple of weeks ago where I asked her to clarify something for me. She had said to me, I don't need you as an ally. And you hear that ally language a lot when we talk about the relationship between white people and people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I was naturally interested in what she meant by that. <laughs> and because she is super smart and because she is always straight up with me, she said, when you are my ally, it implies the problem is our problem and you are helping us with it. The problem is your problem. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, you are absolutely right. So I, that is that is the thing. And so what Kelly has convinced me is that white people of good conscience, you know, the, the people that, that Dr. King talked about is people of good conscience have got to step into this conversation and get past the idea of fragility and get past our guilt and just say, I am complicit in this and I want to repair the harm that we have done. And Dr. King always used to say, people never give up their privilege voluntarily. But I believe one of the things that is possible about this moment in time is we have so many people who have watched George Floyd die and said to themselves, that would never have happened to me because of the color of my skin. And, and so 
when I started writing this book four years ago, I did not expect us to be this far into the conversation. I thought I was doing something daring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but now I'm just like kind of scrambling to keep up. Right. Because it's yeah. like, yes, these movies can teach us some things and we can talk about Gone with the Wind and the noble lost cause and, and white supremacy and white privilege. But also... George Floyd died in front of my very eyes, and I can't get that out of my head. Yeah, you know, and and we've we've certainly come a long way from Birth of a Nation, um, but it's oh, really, I, I you know, I, I, right? <laughs> but I think, as as you point out, it's it's really important to understand the role that that movie plays um, in in uh, blurring the line, or actually just destroying the line between. Um, uh, art and, and reality and that that movie in a lot of ways created a much of the reality that we have that we have today um but is also considered to be you know one of the first great blockbusters and 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 <laughs> it's it's one of those things it's you know it's it's almost like um um the triumph of the will is, is right. right oh that is such a great analogy yeah is that is this like remarkable sort of sweeping uh cinematic work that has inspired a lot of you know cinema makers but also separate the art from the intention of the art right so obviously it's a very very tricky place to be um it's really hard to see like how uh any cinema exists without a movie like birth of a nation and without um a a triumph of the will um, and so that makes sort of the work of pushing past it and and overcoming that uh, very very difficult. But how how are we doing? Like when you look at the the current landscape, um, what work do you think has been accomplished in the last several years? And and mm-hmm. and and where can we go next? Like where where do we push Hollywood next? Well, let me say this, like while you and I are talking tonight, the Republican National Convention is in its last evening. The the white racial mythologies that are captured in Birth of a Nation are showing up every night at the Republican National Convention. And and I I don't mean this to be controversial or political. It's just when you are the, the people who are speaking at the Republican National Convention are not even hiding the fact that they are speaking about race about the dangers of black people, the violence of black men. I mean, all of these, you know, <laughs> black men are going to want to date your daughter, which is basically, you know, the, the central conflict in birth of a nation. Right. right. Uh, miscegenation. So on the one hand, the racial mythologies that birth of a nation memorializes are still an essential part of our culture. And um, so it is, I think it's really important for us to confront Birth of a Nation. That's why I show it in class. It's why I wrote about it. It's why I talk about it. Um, Because one of the things that watching Birth of a Nation helps us do is go, oh, shit, that's really (laughs) racist. (laughs) And just, just, you know, to, we were talking about, you know, the, the Charles Floyd murder. It's like, once you see something, you can't unsee it which is uh, the idea behind blind spotting. Um, the idea that, you know, once you've seen something, you can't, you know, turn away from yeah. it. 
So on, on the one hand, we are still a deeply racist culture. And, you know, this, this idea of progress that, you know, the civil rights era happened and Martin Luther King had a dream and Obama was elected. Um, Ibram Kendi has called that out. And, you know, in his groundbreaking work about race in America, he says, you know, it's a one step you know, forward, two steps back kind of thing. It's an action and reaction thing. Mm-hmm. You don't get a Donald Trump without a Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And you don't get, you know, injured white Christians unless you get movement forward among people of color um, who are on the, you know, the the brink of displacing white Christians from their place of prominence. So that, that is the first thing. We are always in this tension, which is why this moment is so important and why it's so important to seize it. But that said, you know, as a cultural uh, critic, as a cultural theologian, as a film historian, there is so much difference between Birth of a Nation and Black Klansmen or Get Out or um, Beale Street or... Um, I mean, any of the blockbusters, you know, that feature so many people of color. And um, I, I am cautiously optimistic. I mean, because I thought when Barack Obama was elected, that was like racism is done. Oh, and and very, very, very clearly it wasn't. No. <laughs> but I, I have this very powerful sense that one of the ways that Hollywood can be a continuing force in this is, you know, Birth of a Nation reinforced and planted all of these ideas in our most popular medium. Mm-hmm. Moonlight and Black Panther and Get Out and Black Klansmen are not only telling black stories, but they're using our Hollywood tropes and genres and turning them on themselves in ways that make it impossible for us, you know, to maybe go back to the way we were. When, when we showed Get Out, at uh, Washington National Cathedral a few years ago, I took a group of my Baylor students with me uh, to that program. And and one of my students who was white and blonde and has had, uh, I mean, just to be very generous, I mean, I don't know her inner life, but the, my perception of her is that she's a person who has never wanted for anything. Um, so like a, a person like me who has a lot of privilege. And at the end of Get Out, she turned to me and she was weeping. I mean, tears running down her face. And she said, I have never before understood what it is that we do to black people. Yeah. It was that experience of watching that movie in conversation and in community that made it possible for her to have that epiphany, you know, that that light bulb over her head moment. And, And that is still my hope for this book. And for the work that I'm continuing to do with public programming and, and um, you know, figuring out ways to help culture tell our story about race. Because like I was saying earlier, um, the comparison that I typically make is if we sit down at our Thanksgiving table with all of our varied relatives and our crazy Uncle John starts talking about race or socialism or uh, how much he loves Donald Trump, then, you know, we have a certain reaction based on our base point. But if we watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or Black Klansman or um, In the Heat of the Night, then we are talking about characters in a story and we can make connections to 
those characters out of our own lives and experience. But we are not we're not invested in it in the same exact way. So that, you know, like when my mom and I have conversations about politics, nothing good happens. <laughs> but if she and I talk about something that lets us walk into that room together, that is exactly what might help us move forward. Yeah. Okay. We've been going on for a while now. And I, I just, I, I want to let you go and I'm going to soon, but I, you, you can't dangle, you can't, you can't dangle the idea that you and Rowan Williams sit around and talk about Dr. Who with me without, 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 like, um, without letting me in on some of those conversations. Okay. Um, when you and Rowan Williams talk about Dr. Who, uh, and I'm a lifelong Whovian, um, I, you know, I, I have a lot of, cred uh and autographs and that sort of thing to back this up sweet (laughs) like yeah do you have a like a tom baker scarf or i don't i have a i have a peter davison autograph on the back of my uh back of a bookmark that i got in uh, probably 80 87 and when i was when i was very little uh i i met um I met Tom Baker and I, he, he was doing a Q and a session and uh, probably, I don't know, I, maybe six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really hoping he'd bring canine. And I, and I got to ask a question. I said, where's, where's canine. And he, he very, he very sweetly indulged me um, and said that he was home with a cold and, uh, and said that he would send, <laughs> send his regards and that sort of thing. So brilliant. All right. So obviously you, the two of you must talk about the theological implications of Doctor Who. Give me a little sneak uh, into those conversations, and what what sort of things do you guys talk about when you talk about Doctor Who? Well, you know, there is a bit. There is a bit, and and I will tell you, I talk a lot about Doctor Who in uh, my first book for Oxford called Entertaining Judgment, which is about stories of the afterlife. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you might remember like uh, in one of those stories, uh, there's a two part episode, I think it is, where there's there's basically a Satan who's imprisoned in the middle of a planet. Absolutely. Yep. And and, um, so like the way that Rowan and I got to this, uh, we became friends. um, I was over in um, Canterbury um, for a week and I was just starting research on the YouTube book. And uh, he had read my spiritual autobiography, my my book about depression and faith. And uh, because I had written it for a, a conservative Christian publisher, I mean, this is actually still one of my favorite stories, but uh, I had a call from the publisher and they said, we got a fan letter from you, for you. Um, and we didn't know if you wanted it or if we should just throw it away. <laughs> and uh, they said, it's, uh, it's from a palace in London. And, and I said, is it Lambeth Palace? And they said, what? yes, it is. How did you know? And I said, because that is my favorite theologian in the entire world, I would very much like to see that letter. <laughs> and uh, so um, Rowan Williams, of course, was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury during one of the most contentious periods, um, you know, in the Anglican communion. Yeah. Um, and he, in his letter, had said to me, you know, I picked up your book and I read it for hours and I forgot everything that I was worrying about as you took me into your story. Hmm. And um, it, it was a, it was a beautiful letter. And um, so we connected um, and like he invited me to Lambeth palace to have tea while I was at um, Canterbury working on the YouTube book. And then we just hit it off. And 
the thing I think that really appealed to him and like, well, actually we've talked about it. We did a book together last year uh, and it's just come out in the UK. So there's a US version and a UK version. It's seven conversations between the two of us. Um, and, and what he said was, it was really important to me that you did not want to ask me about being Archbishop of Canterbury. Hmm. And what I wanted to ask him about is like, he's a renowned poet and an incredible theologian and a great literary critic. And he speaks more languages than Gandalf. And <laughs> I was just like, why would I like, I don't want to talk to you about being Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm like, like I will gladly come to your palace, but, um, what I want to, I want to know about your work. I want to know what drives you. I want to like, I want to talk about the things that I'm interested in talking about. Yeah. And, um, so one of the things he said to me very early on was he said, if I were a person like you, I should write a book about Doctor Who. <laughs> Which rhymes. It's like a little poem right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so that is actually where we started talking about that. And we talk, talked about that. We talked about The Simpsons. And, you know, we spend most of our time talking about Shakespeare um, because he is like an incredible Shakespearean. Yeah. Um, and then I will tell you, frankly, we also spend a whole lot of time just talking about life. He has been one of my great confidants. My favorite story about Rowan Williams, who, like I said, is always going to be the smartest person in every room he's ever in. (laughs) But he is also like this deeply spiritual human being who has this incredible uh, prayer practice. He's written some books about praying with icons. And uh, I I think I mentioned early on tonight that I had sort of a complicated early life. Yeah. Um, But I I had been married several times uh, during the time that I was wrestling with depression. And then I was single for a very, very, very long time. And then I fell in love with one of my dearest friends. And I didn't know, I mean, this is like such, you know, this is the material of romantic comedy in Hollywood, which is all (laughs) we've been talking about. But I fell in love with my best friend and I was afraid to act on it and afraid to tell her because if she didn't feel the same way, I was going to lose her. And so in the tradition that I grew up in, we had something called prayer circles you know, and it would be a bunch of people, you know, who would agree like covenant to pray about the same thing at the same time. And so I went to Rowan and I told him my ridiculous dilemma. And I said, I'm in love with my best friend. I'm afraid to talk to her about it. I would love to kiss her and I'm afraid she would slap me and I would never see her again. Mm-hmm. And he said, I will pray with you about Jeannie. <laughs> and so... What ultimately happened, as I mean, as you know, and listeners, please understand this. Jeannie and I have been married for years. We are so happy together. Um, she had kids from an earlier relationship. I had kids, uh, but we are doing so well. Uh, but here is the thing about Rowan that is such an amazing thing. So Archbishop of Canterbury in charge of 30 million Christians, um, you know, royal weddings and, you know, uh, House of Lords and and all of this stuff. But um, the summer after I had asked him to pray for Jeannie and I, I had um, uh, set up um, a weekend with him where I came down from Wales to Canterbury uh, to uh, spend the weekend with him and his family. And he came and met me at the train 
Uh, it was raining outside in Canterbury, and he was wearing this hat made out of dead animal, which had been given to him in Uganda the day before when he had been there uh, talking to uh, some of the churches from the African uh, members of the convocation. So once I got past the dead animal on his head, uh, he embraced me as I came off of the train. And although we had not mentioned any of this for four months, he said to me, tell me about Jeannie. And I was just like, this is the genuine article. This is what a real Christian looks like. This yeah. is what love is. <laughs> yeah. And we have been great friends ever since. Um, I had an email from him last night. And it is one of the great joys of my life. I admire him so deeply and I learn so much from him. And that's, that is my thing about friendship, you know, whether it's with Rowan or with Kelly Brown Douglas or with some of the screenwriters that I talk to. The great joys of my life, you know, I've been able to become friends with and learn from and kind of walk alongside people who can teach me stuff. And um, that for me is what it's about to be a human being. I'm 58 years old. I'm learning new stuff every day. I don't ever, as long as I'm walking this planet and breathing oxygen, want to have a day where I don't learn something new and challenge myself. I think that's a good place to leave it. This has been great. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. John, such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, God bless. Mm-hmm.